0: This is Waves, a podcast from APTA Michigan. I'm Andy Wicks. In our last episode, we began a conversation with four physical therapists who are experts in the realm of oncology rehabilitation. Drs. Lori Bullright, Andrew Chongaway, Deb Doherty, and Chris Wilson. Here is the conclusion of that enlightening roundtable discussion. I want to jump back to something that I think Chris said earlier that really struck a chord with me. And our episodes that have come out just prior to this, I had a conversation with Dr. Nicole Piamonte, who is an assistant dean of the medical school at Creighton at their campus in Phoenix, and whose specialty is teaching humanities and healthcare and healthcare education. So there's kind of a two-pronged approach because I was asking her about how much support has she gotten for advocating for humanities to be added to a healthcare curriculum. And we talked about, you got to bring the stats, you got to prove that it's, it's, that's, that's worthwhile. And so I'm glad that you, that you touched on that, Lori, but I want to talk about what Chris said in terms of getting in on day one of the diagnosis and dealing with the whole person, the emotional, the spiritual, the mental, and the physical aspects of this person, when they have been given this diagnosis that has shaken their core to the ground and here you are, like, all right, I'm the PT. We're going to do that. Like, how do you, how do you approach that? Because you can't go in guns blazing. You can't go in like, you know, all right, you're here for your knee rehab. Let's go. Let's do it. That's, that is, that's a fine line to walk. Someone talk about that, please.
1: So it's not necessarily a fine line though. If we are being good physical therapists, we should be looking at the biopsychosocial model of care with every single patient. When we see a patient that has been diagnosed with cancer, we are looking at, obviously, the the traditional physical therapy things. We look at the musculoskeletal system. But with oncology, we have to be giving them measurement tools to look at their quality of life from day one. We have to find out if they have depression and anxiety from day one and be referring. Not that we treat everything, but we need to know what's there and refer out we are talking to patients. If we can see them at prehab, we're doing all this education about the potential adverse effects so that we can help them to understand what the red flags are and and where we can intervene early. And talking about their caregivers and their families. And that is what oncology rehab is. So oncology rehab not only incorporates speech, OT, PT, social work, you know, art therapy, it incorporates all this. But even oncology rehab as a physical therapist means I have to understand every single system of their body, what's happening right now, what can I treat, what can I refer to. That's why onc rehab is different than other areas of physical therapy because we are automatically with every single patient looking at every single system in their body and dealing with it in one way or another.
2: I agree with what Deb said. One of the things I will add to that is, you know, Deb, the perspective that Deb just talked about, it sounds really scary and it sounds overwhelming. And it sounds like, oh, that should be something that you need a board certification or specialization to do. I mean, really, yes, there might be a few things. There might be a few areas where you have to be a board certified specialist, like Andrew to kind of do advanced treatment type things. But really it's kind of having that baseline level of knowledge. I mean, really oncology. Rehabilitation, oncology, physical therapy at its heart is really no different than really any other type of physical therapy. You know, you're treating movement disorders. You're 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 changing range of motion um, measurements. You're improving strength. If someone has swelling, we're treating the swelling. Or if something was loose, we stabilize it. If something is tight, we mobilize it. Um, you know, and then we're also PT f- isn't that hard, really. Yeah, and we're really also focusing on. That whole biopsychosocial model. So, you know, that I think is one of the the misconceptions that I've heard is that, oh my gosh, I'm not a cancer specialist, so I can't treat that patient. Or this patient had a history of cancer, I can't necessarily treat them. And I, I think that's kind of a false paradigm. I think, yes, you might have to do a little bit more homework, especially when it comes to, you know, understanding some of the radiation or chemotherapies. And that's exactly what the special interest group is for is really kind of a, a being, a resource. And that's why we're writing the book, too, is kind of saying nobody can know it all. I mean, I learn something every single day in my clinical practice as an oncology therapist.
1: And if I can throw one more thing in there, I think the other issue with oncology rehab, and this is, you know, at, at the physical therapist level, as well as other medical professionals not understanding what we do, there is a huge fear, has been a huge fear in treating someone diagnosed with cancer. It's always been, oh, no, no, I can't treat them, or they shouldn't be able to do this. And doctors have said, no, no, I don't want you to do anything except go home and rest. I mean, truly, when you think of medicine in general, it's this is such a new field. And so that fear of treating somebody that has a cancer diagnosis has, has really limited people's ability to have a better quality of life. And when Chris said, it's really no different than what we do, it isn't. You just have to get past that fear and know, I don't care if you have a a cancer diagnosis. (laughs) You can do this and you can do these movements and you can get back to where you were before. And, you know, not every patient can, but most of them can. And so we have to get past that fear as physical therapists. Teach the family to not be afraid that their loved one can participate in everything they did before. Teach the doctors that it's okay that we do that. It's really that fear that we have to get over.
0: I work in neuro rehab. I work primarily with people with uh, traumatic brain injuries. And for a lot of my post-concussion patients, they're still being told after their concussion, well, shut yourself up in a dark room for two weeks and you should be fine. That never works. Yeah. So there's there's still that, that in a lot of areas of medicine that I think you could call it a fear-based or an overprotective-based model that I think research just shows time and time again that is it's ineffective at best and counterproductive at worst. So I'm glad that you guys are, are bringing that up and talking about it. And if for students and new grads, that fear, it's a different kind of fear. It's the, oh God, what do I do? I'm, a brand, I'm brand new and I don't know what to do. But you, you you add the C word into it and all of a sudden it's, it's like they're radioactive. And, and if you touch them, they're going to fall apart into pieces or something like that. So I think the, the lesson that I would take away from that is just they're people. Just like you and me, you know, we all got our own piles of garbage we bring around with us, but they're just people in the end.
3: So, Andy, something that we haven't talked about before this point is being prepared to work with somebody in this domain. It is, you know, a little more complicated. You have to do a little bit more work. Again, not all that different from a traditional, you know, orthopedic patient, neurologic patient. But I think some of that fear comes from the emotion that's attached to a potentially life-threatening illness. And with that, fear also comes the layers of emotion and how the therapist resolves that so I think another thing that we really need to consider in terms of preparing people is preparing them emotionally to have the conversations about being faced with a potentially life-threatening illness and then that self-protective mechanism that needs to be installed so that you don't have all of that that you know can impact your own well-being.
0: See, I'm glad you said that, Lori, because you, you are literally reinforcing what was just talked about in the previous episodes. The focus of those two episodes was essentially talking about how in in PT education, that there's a lot of different labels for it. None of them I think are great, but that area of education for a student is lacking. That emotional maturity or emotional intelligence or however you want to describe it, but that being able to know... And be taught, you may have to have these conversations with your patient, or you may have to deal with a patient who suddenly is just bursting into tears in front of you. And now you're like, now what do I do? Because you had, you know, you had a nice long plan of things to do, but toss it out the window because now you have to kind of deal with this person that's in front of you that couldn't give two licks about the exercise program that you had set up for him. So, so th- thank you for, for saying that, Lori.
3: So something that, you know, I equate with my students is, you know, the importance of self-care. And it really cannot be underscored enough, especially in the middle of a pandemic. But literally, our ability to care for ourselves impacts our ability to care for others. So their quality of life, your patient's quality of life literally depends on your own quality of life. And so that is something that I impress upon the students with extra punctuation.
0: I have a student coming into my clinic in January and I'm, I'm half jokingly going to tell her she better have a counselor by the time she's done with my session, if she wants to pass this rotation. But I, I agree with you. I think, honestly, I think we all should, I think it should just be standard practice. You get a, a doctor, a dentist and a psychologist. There you go. So anyway,
2: Chris, you're up. I'm glad we're kind of going out of this road. Cause I'm going to get on, on my soapbox a little bit when it comes to, you know, yes, but for oncology rehab, the the, most of the patients that we work with are going to be successful in their battle with cancer. And that patient population is growing because we're getting better as a, as a healthcare system of curing cancers and managing cancers. I mean, things that were death sentences years ago are now really kind of turning into chronic conditions. But unfortunately there is a subset of the patient population who is not going to be successful in their battle with cancer. And that's been really one of my crusades, if you will, is that in the olden days, it used to be, oh, this person is on hospice or, oh, this person is on comfort care. Why would physical therapy work with them? And my my short answer is they're still alive. They still have goals. They still have aspirations. They still want to do stuff. Um, they still need to do their activities of daily living, and they should still have unfettered access to physical therapy because their bodies are going to be changing so we've spent a lot of time really at the national level kind of defining what the role of physical therapy is through like the apta house of delegates that wrote a motion that kind of helped establish the, the role of hospice and palliative care physical therapy and again that's one of those other areas where you know if you're if you're old as i am like a little bit of gray in my beard that you know you were kind of probably taught In your programs or be it by your CIs that if your patient isn't quote unquote getting better, you have to discharge them. And at least for Medicare and some private insurances, that is a false paradigm now. So if physical therapy is needed to maintain someone's status or even slow the decline of a progressive condition, be it cancer or not, Medicare specifically and some other private insurances do pay for that. And that's something that not a lot of people are aware of. And that's something I think we really kind of need to get out there because it is a big part of what we do and a big cost to the healthcare system is chronic disease management.
0: I think you need to say it louder for the people in the back, Chris. (laughs) That's, I mean, I, I, I 100% agree with you. I work in my facility. It's often with people who are funded through auto no fault because they've been in these, these catastrophic car accidents. And I have patients that were injured 30 years ago, okay? It would still require 24-hour care. And now they're 30 years older than they were when they had their accident. And so I'm dealing with, yeah, exactly what you talked about. I'm slowing the decline because I have patients that are now they're kyphotic, they can hardly breathe. But it's all sequelae of their injuries sustained in the car accident. But it's still, it's, yeah, it's, it's a valuable service that prevents worsening care, prevents hospitalizations, or all those things, so... I, I'm glad that you said that because I have vivid memories of CIs, supervisors telling me if they're not making progress, discharge them, move them on to the next one. And it's just,
2: it's a, it's a disservice. It really is. And the the other thing I'll say about that patient population is that's where really those conversations like Lori was talking about really come into play. And, and, and just like with any cancer rehabilitation, working with those who have advanced cancer or stage four or terminal cancer. Those conversations and that psychosocial aspect is very, very large. And that's always kind of the scary thing that, you know, that some people say, well, I don't know what to say. You know, what if my patient asks me, you know, am I gonna die? Is there a God? You know, some of those type of of scary questions. And that's where I really love working with the interdisciplinary team of cancer. And I think that's something that can absolutely not be understated is being able to one, you know, use their knowledge, use their skill set, because those are things that we aren't always taught in physical therapy school. But other people, they are taught about that. And even just for a, a so, you know, a, an informal counseling group. You know, sometimes we all just need to vent, and sometimes you need to say, "I had a bad day with a bunch of patients, and I need a hug, or I need a, you know, I can't do hugs anymore in COVID." But you get the idea um, <laughs> that that you can kind of be that interprofessional totally. support group, and not kind of integrates you as part of that team. And I think that's one of the things that, that I love most about oncology rehabilitation is is enriching the patient experience and outcomes through close collaboration of the interdisciplinary team.
0: So Chris, you and I are going to come up with a class to teach students how to have these conversations with, with patients. Perfect. Let's do it. Awesome. <laughs> Lori, you mentioned the the global aspect of the students that are in your certificate program. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask, it's a, it's a bit tangential, but how prevalent is oncology rehab globally? Is this an American phenomenon? What is the status of oncology rehab on a global scale?
3: I think in some ways, you've kind of already prefaced it very nicely. A lot of what we do, especially in terms of like prehabilitation, did evolve out of in Europe, the surgical interventions, ERAS, the early recovery after surgery type protocols kind of spurned the, the prehab movement here in the United States and especially in Canada. So Canada actually has a very robust evidence development. Many, many teams are researching prehab in, in Canada. I can also speak to a very robust presence of oncology rehab in Australia. Um, okay. So it's another area that they actually have. COSA, the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, I believe, their mission statement actually includes exercise as standard of care and referrals to physical therapists as standard of care for all persons diagnosed with cancer. So they're a little bit ahead of you know where we are in terms of it being fully incorporated across the board. They've been able to to fully integrate those two aspects, exercise and prescription with a uh, physical therapist. So certainly very robust on a, on a global scale. And I, I wouldn't say we're really behind the times here in the United States. We have lots of wonderful things developing and, and growing, but I think some of it has to do with, with our payment models and, and those sorts of things too. Access to care can impact the ability to deliver those kinds of services more broadly.
1: So we have had students from Jamaica and, as Laurie mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel. One of the things we see across the board with all of these therapists is that, of course, they're, they have socialized medicine, so they have easier access to get to the patients. They don't have to have a physician referral often. And if they want to treat patients that have a cancer diagnosis, you know, go for it. Now, what they don't have is enough therapists to actually do all the treatments that should be done. So they they don't have the limitation in, in getting access to the patient, just not enough therapists to do what they need to do. However, they're still lacking a lot of the information that we are providing for them in everything that we can do. Uh, you know, as as we talked about how we can be involved in five different levels of prevention and the different types of treatment interventions we provide, that's what they're gaining by participating in our graduate certificate in oncology rehab. So we just have a rich conversations with these therapists. It's so much fun because there are still a lot of things that we all feel the same way about. We all wish we had more time with patients. We wish we had more access to patients. We wish that the doctors would let us come in and treat patients earlier and do more prehab. So there's some things that we we face globally. But they are learning a lot from our program because many of them will say, oh, I didn't understand how to use evidence-based medicine in order to get more referrals from the physicians. And we help them to learn how to develop oncology rehab programs. So like one of our physical therapist graduates from Israel is now teaching the other physical therapists about oncology rehab throughout the whole country of Israel. The same with our our recent graduate from Iran. And now he is the face of oncology rehab in Iran.
0: You guys are planting seeds.
1: Yeah, it is really, really wonderful that that we all see the same problems and we can together figure them out.
0: So that's absolutely wonderful to hear that because for me, that kind of that global communication, that global physiotherapy family that I, I I wish there was more. I mean, I know there's a lot of efforts out there to make communication more accessible, but it's it's tough. It's just, it's hard. But I love that. That seems like it's a very central part of what you guys are doing there, and I, I just, I guess I just want to take a moment to say that PT for me seems like it has changed so much, it, even in the time since I was in school, to to focus away from, or maybe just focus. I don't want to say focus away from anything, but just focus towards areas where PT I don't even think would have been considered, oncology rehab, working in an emergency department. All these other settings and, and kind of niches that we're filling, working almost as a primary care provider in some senses, and I just think it's so interesting to see how the profession is is morphing and changing, and and it's exciting to me.
2: I think that I think you're you're right on the ball. Line is as with that change, um, also comes a little bit more of the onus and responsibility of on us for safety as well, and that's I think one of those areas that you know it is a scary perceived area of oncology rehabilitation. And there are a few areas where maybe there's some some yellow lights that you kind of need to to make sure that you're clearing before you see the patient. So a couple of the ones that that I've seen quite a bit in clinical practice, and we were developing the residency program, are patients with bone cancer, bone metastases, because obviously we're doing potentially weight bearing activities, and if someone has a, a tumor in the middle of a long bone and we don't know how big it is it could be a problem so that that's one of those areas that i tell therapists okay if you see that or if you hear about that that's a time where you need to kind of get more information and that really is reaching out to the oncologist or um, the primary care physician or whoever the referral source is to to find more about that another area is that some some chemotherapies are actually pretty hard on your heart the the term is actually cardiotoxicity and it's and the, the, the darn annoying thing is it's not everyone, it's only of them, and everyone gets affected somewhat different, but it kind of in, in very, very broad terms, it's almost kind of like a cardiomyopathy or a congestive heart failure type response. Um, okay. Again, I'm, I'm broadly generalizing, sure. but that's one of those things where you kind of need to, you know, stop the line and then say, okay, my my patient has recently had chemotherapy or had chemotherapy in the past. You know, I wonder if it was one of those cardiotoxic chemotherapies. And really, you know, there there's some really, really good resources. The one that is my absolute favorite is called chemocare.com. That I will go to and then I'll find out. Okay, type in the exact cancer chemotherapy medication that they have. And sometimes they're on a few of them. So you might have to Google two or three of them on that Chemocare website and then find out if any of them have affected the patient's heart because if they have and you're you're prescribing a relatively aggressive exercise program, you're you're increasing their heart rate, it could be overwhelming to their body system. So, you know, there's not a whole ton of those areas, but there are a few areas where, you know, you you have to kind of check yourself before you kind of get in any sticky situations that you might not want to get into.
1: So I just wanted to talk a little bit about tele-rehab because we've talked so much already yep. Yep. about the, you know, this this field of psychology rehab is just exploded in the last few years in so many different ways. And it's just so wonderful to to witness um, and, and be part of. And another one of those areas is with tele-rehab. So COVID, of course, took it to another level and helped tele-rehab even become more important, although it had started before then. And it's, It's even more important, and particularly with administrators, because there are issues with administrators with oncology rehab because there tends to be more cancellations with patients diagnosed with cancer just because their world and their bodies and their abilities go go up and down depending on their treatments, and so they may have to cancel more often. Well, with tele-rehab, they don't have to cancel. So even though they may not be able to come into the, the clinic, we can still do a tele-rehab visit and still get insurance coverage for that. So there is, I'm actually involved in some research looking at that, particularly with with just the African-American breast cancer population at this time. But tele-rehab is just exploding literally across the United States and in other countries as well because it is a wonderful way for us to keep that connection with patients to keep them moving, they must keep moving. They must keep moving forward, and it helps with the emotional side of it because you're keeping that that social connection with them. And I do think that tele rehab is going to keep growing and growing in the ecology uh, rehab world. And there's lots of different ways now with technology that we can do uh, an evaluation over a computer. <laughs> In some ways, some some really simplistic ways of doing an evaluation and see what their range of motion is. And and it's working and it's keeping them going, keeping them involved, even though they may not be able to leave the house.
0: Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how telehealth continues post-COVID whenever we get there. Because I think a lot of clinicians are seeing the benefit of that in a lot of ways. It's it's going to be one of those tools that we're we're going to have to figure out what works really well and what's like, eh, not so much. But it's got a home. I'm sure it does.
1: In onc rehab, it does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this has been wonderful. This has been absolutely a blast. I have loved learning all about oncology rehab, and I feel like I could give a 30-second elevator pitch now if I had to. So thank you, guys. I really do appreciate it. Dr. Andrew Chongaway is a board-certified oncologic clinical specialist. Doctors Chris Wilson, Lori Bullwright, and Deb Doherty are members of the faculty at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Get to know them. They're good people. Waves is a production of APTA Michigan. This episode was hosted and edited by me, Andy Wicks. Our co-host is Catherine Klein. You can find and subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at www.aptami.org slash podcasts. We can be found on social media at APTAMIwaves. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and may all your documentation always be done on time.